Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 110 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing how to handle assholes and trolls with Aaron James, author of the book Assholes, A Theory. But first up, we've got an interview with actor Cecil Baldwin, voice of the wildly popular podcast Welcome to Night Vale, written by Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Cranor. Cecil plays Cecil Palmer, a radio host who reports on the strange goings-on in Night Vale, a desert community where monsters and conspiracies are just daily occurrences. And now, here's our interview with Cecil Baldwin. All right, so we're here with Cecil Baldwin. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so uh, why don't you just start out and tell us how you first got involved with Welcome to Night Vale? Well, I am working for a theater company called the New York Neo-Futurists, and we do a weekly show in the East Village called Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind. And I had written a short play in which I was commiserating not being able to find any voiceover work, even though people have told me pretty much my entire adult life that I have a radio announcer voice. And uh, there was a writer who is a friend of mine who was in the audience that day. And he was like, yes, you do have a great voice. Maybe I will utilize that in some way. That was Joseph Fink. And he went on to create Welcome to Night Vale um, and asked me after he'd written the pilot episode if I would like to record it. And I said, yes. So, I mean, yeah, you do have a great voice. So why did you, why were you not finding work uh, doing voiceovers? Well, I find that I have uh, a relatively old-fashioned voice. Uh, it's very 1960s radio announcer. Um, and just because of what the market is looking for nowadays in commercials and radio, oftentimes they want sort of an everyman kind of voice, uh, sort of like a Paul Rudd or, you know, someone like that. And I just didn't really fit into that commercial box. Hmm. Um, and so you mentioned that you are with a acting troupe called the Neo-Futurists. And since this is a science fiction show, we're really interested in futurism. Uh, does Neo-Futurism have anything to do with the sort of futurism that we would do on the show? Um, it's not necessarily... It Future as in science fiction future, it's more of a borrowed idea from the Italian futurists who had this idea that art should be temporary and disposable and we shouldn't hold on to our art and worship it and put it on a pedestal, that art should be immediate and present. And once it is done, it it should be thrown away. And so as the neo-futurists, uh, which was started 25 years ago uh, in Chicago, we do a lot of work that is ephemeral and immediate. And then we are constantly cutting plays never to be performed again and writing new material. We do a lot of living newspaper, uh, autobiographical, things like that. So um, I can't write about something that happened to me 20 years ago and pretend like it's still happening. Everything has to be honest and immediate. Hmm. I mean, just uh, that aside, do you have any interest in science fiction or that sort of futurism? Um, I've definitely read 
a lot of the 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 classic uh science fiction novels my dad was a huge science fiction enthusiast and i've uh taken a couple of his books with me i think stranger in a strange land was the last one that i read uh really enjoyed that mm -hmm. um okay cool and so the format of welcome to night vale it's sort of like a community radio show uh like sort of where did that idea come from and do you guys have any background in community radio i don't think any of us have any background in community radio uh i believe for joseph it was something that was reflecting the late night radio he would listen to as a child growing up in california um mixed together with driving across the country and finding these small radio shows um you know, throughout the Southwest. And he decided to take that format um, and then add this sort of fantasy, dark humor, horror twist to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, have you ever gone back and listened to any sort of community radio or anything like that to kind of model your performance after it? I've not actually. It's, I mean, it's something that I was, I, 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 I know it's out there and I, um, have heard a couple of examples, but it's, I didn't do too terrible. I didn't do a lot of research on it before I got started. Um, I understood the, the genre of community radio and we just kind of ran with it. Uh, the writing is also very, um, can be very existential, funny, scary, which you don't really get as much in traditional, uh, community radio shows. Uh, so it kind of freed me up to make artistic choices in the performance as I was going along. Uh, I thought I heard you say in an interview that you had worked for like a public access TV show or something like that. Um, yes. When I was in high school, some friends of mine had a public access comedy show uh, similar to uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, but that was very brief. And it was really just a bunch of teenagers getting up in front of a camera once a week and being silly and ridiculous. <laughs> You know, the only experience I have with public access TV is I lived in Austin for a while and I used to watch Alex, just for laughs, I would watch Alex Jones on this public access TV channel. I don't know if you ever, it's, he's like this conspiracy guy and it's almost like Welcome to Night Vale, how crazy the stuff yeah. he says is. <laughs> okay, cool. So, and, and I mean, since I'm a podcaster as well, I'm always kind of curious just how people do their podcasts. So just in terms of the equipment and software and the practical stuff like that, how do you put together Welcome to Night Vale? Night Vale is actually very low tech. Um, I have a relatively inexpensive snowball microphone that I bought on Amazon for, I think, $70. And I use GarageBand, which is, you know, the free software through Mac. Um, and then I just record the episodes in bits and pieces, send it off to Joseph, and he mixes it all together with music and sound effects. Um, so it's very much a homegrown project, um, which to me typifies where podcasting is at right now. The idea that anybody with moderate technological skills can put together a podcast and broadcast themselves worldwide. Um, and we've just been fortunate that a lot of people have discovered us and have appreciated the work that we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually used the Blue Snowball for the first two or so years of this podcast. I've since upgraded to a Blue Yeti. Oh, excellent. Uh, <laughs> now, now, you got, now that you guys have hit the big time, you think you might upgrade to a like an $80 microphone? 
I might. I, I'm definitely considering it. Um, I, I record out of my apartment in uh, New York, uh, which is relatively loud and not very conducive to getting a good sound quality all the time. Uh, but I'm moving soon and to a much quieter neighborhood and actually have a side office that I can control the sound a little better. Yeah, I, can, I think I can hear like a garbage truck or something in the background. Yes, yes, can. No, uh, recording an episode of Night Vale is fraught with garbage trucks, ice cream trucks, neighborhood school children, um, banging of doors, uh, all of that. And I just, I, I, I find it's better to record in longer stretches uh, to maintain the sort of artistic integrity of the show. And so it's a lot of stopping a door will slam and then I'll start again. If you just heard that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I live, I live right off of Broadway. So it's a little bit loud. Um, sorry for the sound quality. I have no idea what's happening outside right now. Hmm. So what, what, where are you moving to? I'm moving to Brooklyn. Uh, I found a nice quiet neighborhood in Brooklyn that is uh, a little bit better for working out of my home. <laughs> yeah. So do you have any idea what kind of software Joseph uses to mix the show and what sort of like where does he get all the sound effects and stuff like that? I don't know. I actually do not know what he uses to mix the show. Um, I think it's relatively simple. It's free software would be my guess. I think a lot of the sound effects he finds are through a free sound effects website. Um, I couldn't tell you the name of it, though, but it's a lot of people who have just made sound effects and then put them out on the Internet for anyone to use, um, which is amazing. Hmm. OK, and so we have an unusually high number of listener questions for you. So I'll, uh, I'll try to get sprinkle those in throughout this discussion. But so we have one from Greg Byrne. He wants to know, do you have any influence on the writing process? I have no direct influence on the writing process. Any influence I have is generally at the bar over a beer. Um, I will mention to Joseph or Jeffrey, hey, you know, it'd be cool if, and then they either take my idea or they don't, but it's always very informal. Um, so I don't actually directly influence the writing. However, I have noticed that based on certain choices I make in performance, they will then take an idea that uh, came out in the recording of an episode and then follow that. Um, I believe the Cecil Carlos romance plotline was somewhat based in the performance of those episodes. Huh, that's interesting. So, I mean, did you guys start out with the idea that the show was going to have a, a gay relationship uh, as a prominent part of it? Or is that was that complete happenstance? Uh, I, it definitely did not. It was not our plan to have that be the main relationship in the show. Uh, Carlos was, I think, mentioned in the very first episode. And his role in the story was that of the outsider. He was the scientist who comes to Night Vale and is trying to explain the unexplainable or at least figure out the unexplainable and from that the way that i performed the character cecil talking about carlos this idea of a relationship came out of that uh okay so another listener question from rhododendron w on this subject says since he's a queer role model to some of us who were his queer role models growing up 
Oh man, there's uh, there's quite a few. Um, I mean, in the world of acting, I always looked up to people like Ian McKellen and Alan Cumming, who were very much aware of their sexuality and did not shy away from their sexuality, and yet still produced extremely high quality performances, regardless of gay or straight or bisexual. Um, were able to be taken seriously, whether they were playing Macbeth or if they were playing a gay magazine producer or something like that. Um, and I really respected that. And I wanted to make a, cre a career that was based on those ideas, that it didn't matter if the actor himself is gay or straight or bisexual. What mattered was the performance of the character. Um, I think as a, one of my favorite filmmakers growing up was Derek Jarman. And I think the first time I saw Edward the second, um, that film just completely blew my mind. Uh, I think it was the first time I ever understood postmodern film and the idea of taking a classical text and using modern imagery, um, to, expand on that and to make that story relevant uh that was a huge influence to me growing up hmm. i mean certainly it seems that many young people uh are, are really inspired by the relationship between cecil and carlos um just kind of what sort of things do fans say to you about it i mean it's it's amazing how people are ready for the idea that there can be uh two men or two women in a relationship that is the central, one of the central themes of a story without being the entirety of the story. Um, there's plenty of gay independent film and theater and, and writing, but oftentimes, uh, the, the, the gay aspect of it has a tendency to overshadow everything else and to inform everything else rather than being a singular aspect of a larger picture. Um, and I think we're ready for that as a society to include gay, lesbian, transgendered, queer characters without letting their sexuality completely define who they are. Uh -huh. Okay, so we might have some drama here. So Hal Lublin asks, do you secretly love Steve Carlsberg asking for a friend? Of course I love Steve Carlsberg. Um, Hal is an amazing actor and I cherish every time I get to work with him on stage, especially he is hilarious and he is so funny and so giving as an actor. Um, and it allows me to take a character that I've created, which is normally very, um, calm and, uh, maybe a little, um, warm and and giving to every character in Night Vale with the exception of Steve Carlsberg. So uh, getting to play Cecil in relationship to Steve is a lot of fun because it just gives me a chance to do something different. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, and so then Juin Raud says, how much is Night Vale influenced by the Cthulhu mythos? And he wants to know if you're familiar with Arkham Horror, Roger Zelazny's Night in the Lonesome October, or Anne and Jeff Vandermeer's anthology The Weird. Um, I, I think the idea of the unexplained horror is definitely present in Night Vale. I know that Joseph 
um, has read some Lovecraft and has actually, through his uh, publishing house, uh, Commonplace Books, has written, uh, solicited short stories based on the unused ideas of H.P. Lovecraft. But I think what we are trying to do with Night Vale is something very different um, it's something a little more modern. It has more of a modern perspective um, and more of a uh, worldly perspective than Lovecraft was writing about. Um, I am not as familiar with the other artists that you mentioned. Um, I definitely enjoy horror as a genre. It's probably one of my favorite film genres, um, but I often don't get a chance to read um, either uh, novels or graphic novels related to that as much as I would like. So I'm always looking for good book suggestions. Mm. I mean, so what would be some of your favorite recent horror films? Oh, man. Um, I really enjoyed Byzantium. I thought was a beautiful movie uh, that sort of took the vampire myth and uh, found a really amazing way to update it and uh, keep it relevant in a way that was um, smart and sexy and just incredibly well-made and well-written and well-acted and well-directed. Um, I, I do enjoy my uh, schlocky throwback horror as well. Um, I'm a big fan of 70s Italian horror, Dario Argento, um, Mario Bava, Lucio Fulci, things like that. Um, uh, I enjoy a lot of the 80s, zombie movies. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I find that the difficulty with loving a genre so specifically is that after a while, you have a tendency to run out of new material. Um, you know, when when I'm confronted with my Netflix queue, it's hmm. always, um, you know, shall I, shall I watch Night of the Living Dead? Or, um, you know, a, you know, pick a Cronenberg film? Shall I watch it for the 50th time? Or shall I try to branch out and experience newer work? And, you know, it's it's kind of a give and take where, you know, you're not going to discover anything new that you love, but you do have to wade through a lot of crap in order to get to the good stuff. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, you mentioned this this Lovecraft anthology that Joseph edited. And I swear, you know, a couple of years ago, I went to an event at Word in the Word bookstore in Brooklyn, where it was some guys and they had that exact same thing. It was uh, a, a Lovecraft anthology where they had randomly assigned ideas from this list of unused Lovecraft ideas. And I wonder if it was the same guys. I don't know how many anthologies along those lines there could be. Oh, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe if you, next time you see Joseph, ask him if he was ever if he ever did an event at Word Bookstore. I'd be curious <laughs> sure. to know that. I will. Because um, I saw I actually saw an interview where he was saying he actually actively dislikes Lovecraft. I, I think he does. He uh, I mean, Lovecraft was writing from a very specific time and place and the world was much smaller. And uh, a lot of Lovecraft's work, I I. I think is influenced by this sort of fear of the unknown. And unfortunately, a lot of the world itself was unknown and a lot of humanity. And so a lot of his underlying themes developed sexism and racism as part of this idea of fear of the unknown. And, you know, it's 2014. And I think we're a little bit beyond that now. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was a really interesting point where you guys were talking about that in the modern world, 
it's we deal with information overload. And so Night Vale expresses that in the sense that the most outrageous things are just passe to us now almost. Exactly. Um, I mean, the idea of a community of people where angels and conspiracy theories and shadowy government figures and uh, dinosaurs randomly appearing in the middle of PTA meetings can be something that is completely commonplace, can be something that is just your average Tuesday afternoon, um, adds to a great deal of the comedy. Um, I think what makes Night Vale uh, particularly scary or uh, provocative is the idea that we don't spend a lot of time describing the horrible things that happen to the citizens of Night Vale. We leave a lot of that up to the audience's imagination. Um, again, the podcast format for this is amazing because it is a disembodied voice that gets pumped in through your computer or your headphones, and it forces the listener to create the horror for themselves. And to me, as an actor and as a storyteller, this throws back to the idea of the campfire ghost story, where the idea is whatever is unexplainable and whatever is unknown is one of the scariest things. If you go into too much detail, if you do all the work for the listener, then they have a tendency to become disengaged by the story because you're providing all the answers for them. And so I find a lot of uh, classic suspense uh, films, things like that, um, do an excellent job of giving you just enough information to raise the hair on the back of your neck without becoming um, exploitative or um, being too in your face. Um, it, it allows the listener to come to the story rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, there's all this stuff, this creepy stuff in Night Vale that I think most listeners, you know, they just, they just think it's kind of fun, but there are definitely people out there who believe in all these sorts of conspiracy theories. Do they ever write to you and say like, Hey man, this, there's more, you know, you're, you're more right than you even know. I don't, as far as I know, we have not received any conspiracy theory, uh, theory enthusiasts who have validated anything we have written on Night Vale. I would be really interested to see that email if we ever get it, though. Uh, how about just uh, feedback from listeners in general? I mean, what do people, I mean, the, the podcast is so popular. Just what do people say? Uh, what, what, what reasons do people give you when they write to you for why they love the podcast so much? I think for me, being a gay actor, I do get a lot of younger people who have told me that having a central relationship that is to men is incredibly empowering for them, and it makes them feel like they're not alone out there. Um, as well as, because of the fact that Night Vale is something that is relatively PG, we don't go into a lot of gory details, we don't uh, use a lot of harsh language, um, it's also something that I find that families can listen to together. Um, and I have met quite a few young gay and lesbian transgendered um, listeners who have listened to the show with their parents and used that as a gateway to 
understand, to help their parents understand where they are coming from. Um, and I find that amazing because then you have multiple generations of P of listeners and you also have um, families and friends who are taking something that is very individual and turning it into something that is very uh, community based. I find that amazing. Um, I also find that a lot of people have written to tell me that because Night Vale is very beautifully scripted and my performance of it is very oftentimes very calm and soothing, a lot of people with anxiety disorders will use the show to help calm them down and get to sleep when their brains are racing and they have a hard time focusing. Um, and that is something that I did not expect, but I, I find incredibly amazing that I can help people out who have um, a problem that a piece of art that I help create can help them in their everyday life. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, do people ever write to you and gripe about stuff or like, are there areas of the show that you want to like try to do even better? Um, people gripe to us all the time <laughs> about everything that could possibly be uh, talked about. And it's one of those things where we have been making this podcast for two years. We are independent artists we make this podcast out of our respective homes and we have no corporate sponsorship. So we are in the position to create the art that we want to create. And admittedly, feedback from fans is always lovely, whether it's good or bad, but it also gives us an opportunity to examine what we've been doing and say, well, this person may have a valid point, but that's not where we're taking the show. Or this person is uh, seems to be a bit of a crackpot. Or <laughs> you know, to to examine each uh, letter as it uh, as it has been given. Uh -huh. Would you? I don't know if you're comfortable saying what any of those crackpot kind of things are. Oh, it's it. it sometimes it's better just to delete and not <laughs> on. Um, rather than get yourself uh, angry over someone. But I, a lot of things involving the, you know, the introduction to the podcast is too long. And, you know, could you edit it down so it's shorter? And to that, you know, we always just kind of look at each other and, and say, well, it's a free podcast. We're self-producing this. Um, you have a fast forward button, I suggest you use it. Um, but of course, it's sometimes better not to say those things out loud and then engage in a rather heated back and forth discussion with people than it is to just keep it as uh, professional as possible. Uh -huh. Well, you mentioned that there's this great power to the audio format and that people use their imaginations to fill everything in. Uh, could you just talk about the the fan art slash cosplay aspect of Welcome to Night Vale? Uh, the fan art was actually one of the first things that I noticed when we started to uh, gain listenership. Um, I find it amazing. I, I think it's really fascinating how people on Tumblr and, uh, you know, all these other various websites have taken 
something that is very minutely described uh, characters who have very little physical description and have uh, assigned physical descriptors to those characters. Um, sometimes there is sort of a uh, consensus to what a character looks like. Oftentimes there's a, as many different views of what a character can look like as there are artists creating art, which I find amazing. Um, so that way there's, uh, there's no bounds of ethnicity or uh, gender assigned to these characters. So it allows people to use their own imaginations. Um, I've even noticed art where the character of Cecil and various other characters aren't even human. And all of that is valid. All of that is acceptable and valid because it is that person's interpretation of what they are receiving from the show and what they want to create in their own right. Uh, so, I mean, what characters have the least amount of consensus and most amount of consensus over what they look like? I think characters like um, the faceless old woman who secretly lives in your home, Hiram McDaniels, these seem to be the characters that are pretty universally accepted as what they are. Uh, characters like Tamika Flynn and Carlos, who have, we've all but, you know, stated their, their specific ethnicity. Um, a lot of people have latched onto that and have really run with that um, and kind of used the clues that have been written into the show. Um, as the character Cecil is deliberately not described in great physical detail. Now, this means that a lot of the ideas of what Cecil looks like have been developed by the fans. The ideas of the third eye, the purple vest, the sleeve tattoos, things like that are never mentioned in the show and have developed from the imaginations of the fans. Um, I think in regards to the ethnicity of Cecil, there's a lot of very different ideas of what that is. And I think all of them are acceptable and valid. A lot of people have a tendency to depict him as sort of a dapper 1960s madman style radio announcer who is white and blonde haired. And that is great. There's a lot of people who depict Cecil as African-American or Native American or Asian, and that is great. I've also seen Welcome to Night Vale Cecil fan art where Cecil is a moth who sits on a microphone, and that <laughs> as well is great because it allows the artist to bring themselves to the show and take the ideas and then process it for themselves. Um, I, I have found that there's a definite need for people, um, especially younger people, to run to the creators of work in order to find the right answers. And we are a little bit prickly in that we don't necessarily have the right answers to give. We have taken these ideas and we've fleshed out characters and the characters are defined by how they relate to each other, not by what they look like. And I, I find it fascinating when fans 
write me or Joseph or Jeffrey and ask us, what is the right answer for what does Cecil look like? And our answer is always, what do you think he looks like? Because ultimately, these characters exist only in the minds of the listeners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw uh, an appearance you guys did where uh, in in Welcome to Night Vale, there's this cat, Kulshak, who floats in the uh, bathroom at the radio uh, station. And as as it develops, there are just odd details about this cat, like it has a spiny ridge and makes kind of a roaring sound and stuff like that. And a girl asked, well, wait, obviously this isn't really a cat. What is it? Or can you tell us what it really is? And um, Joseph was like, no, <laughs> you know, no, I'm not going to tell you that. I mean, this is this is part of the fun of it is, you know, it is spoken word. It's, it's storytelling. Um, if we were making a TV show uh, based on Welcome to Night Vale, it would be very different. Uh, you know, the the actors playing the various different characters and the locations and the props and, you know, everything else that comes along with creating a piece of visual entertainment would then become what those characters are. Um, but for us, because it exists in the mind of the listeners, it allows that freedom for people to kind of decide for themselves. Um, you know, talking about Koshek, the floating cat, um, some people have imagined it as a very normal looking cat. Some people have imagined it as having wings and some people really get the like, um, the, the sort of sci-fi aspect of this creature who may or may not be a cat, but has definite non-feline features and they run with that as well. And I think all of those are great ideas and they're meant to sort of tantalize the listener and, and spark their own imagination. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, do you think there ever will be a, a Welcome to Night Vale TV show or a graphic novel or some other visual thing like that? I don't know yet. Um, I know that Joseph and Jeffrey are working very hard on creating a novel first, which will come out in uh, fall of 2015. And I think once the novel is out, that will then inform any future iterations of Night Vale in a different medium. Um, we've already started doing a lot more touring, but we tour and when we do live shows, we do it in such a way that is very much based on radio theater, where we don't wear costumes, we're not trying to transport the audience and make them suspend their disbelief. And um, it's, it's very clearly actors standing in front of microphones with scripts in their hands in order to keep that idea that this world exists in the minds of the listeners, whether it's from their computer or if it's uh, happening live directly in front of them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, why don't you just talk a bit more about the live shows and are there any other ones coming up? Yes, we are gearing up to tour Welcome to Night Vale in uh, July. We are going to do uh, a lot of dates in Canada, which is I'm very excited about because this is our first time going international um, and we're going to some really amazing cities. We're also doing um, some dates in sort of uh, the Midwest and mountain states in the United States, uh, places like Denver and Salt Lake City. We're also getting ready to go to uh, DashCon in Schaumburg, Illinois, 
which is a uh, convention that is dedicated to uh, Tumblr users. Um, and since Tumblr makes up a large part of our listenership, we thought it would be a lot of fun to go to that. And then all of this will uh, kind of cap off in uh, San Diego Comic-Con, which is going to be huge. It's our first time going to San Diego Comic-Con, which is arguably one of the largest conventions in the world. And I'm extremely excited to see everything that's at the convention and represent Welcome to Night Vale at the convention as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I'll, I just want to let people know that your previous live shows are available online. Uh, it's called The Debate and uh, Condos. Uh, will you be performing those or something different? We actually have a different script. We, um, we try to maintain the idea that every time we go to a new city, we bring a, uh, a script that they've never heard before. So currently we have a touring script called The Librarian, uh, which is about what happens when the librarians of Night Vale um, get loose, shall we say. Mm -hmm. um, and we take that script to as many different cities as we possibly can without repeating. And then once we have toured that script as much as we can, we release a recording of it. So that way, if Night Vale ever comes to your city, you are getting an experience that is always different. You get this uh, script that has never been performed before in your city. So that way, we hope people will come back and see us when we return. Hmm. It's funny you mentioned the librarians, because one of the things that really struck me about Welcome to Night Vale is that it takes all the most uh, like banal, harmless aspects of a small town and turns them into something sinister so there's like the summer reading club and you know yeah. just just all the all you know all these harmless things uh, i was wondering do you do you have like a list of actual uh small town activities or something you just go through it and think okay here's the sinister spin we could put on this one and this one on this one I think when we first started the show, uh, when I was talking with Joseph and Jeffrey about the idea of what exactly a small town community radio show would include, it has a lot of the things that we've incorporated into the show. Things like uh, local sports teams, especially high school sports teams, um, PTA meetings, um, traffic reports, weather reports, uh, community calendars. Um, spotlights on um, local government officials, things like that, which seem to be the bulk of what small town communities are concerned with. And we just take the idea that uh, the average and mundane can be mysterious and horrifying and the mysterious and horrifying can be average and mundane. And we swap those out and it creates this lovely dichotomy that creates both humor and can also create a sense of suspense and uh, terror. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you mentioned that you have a huge following on Tumblr, and I understand that a main reason Welcome to Night Vale really blew up the way it did is because of this Tumblr community. And do you think that, um, I don't know if people were sharing the actual episode so much on Tumblr, or were they sharing the fan art or something else that um, that sort of contributed to the uh, people going and listening to the show? I, I think it was the fan art mixed with people telling their friends that they found something and that their friends should start listening to it. 
Uh, because Night Vale is released for free, it's very easy to find on iTunes and various other podcasting services. Um, so it's not difficult to find the material on the internet. Um, early on, I, I think we noticed that a, like we would find these sort of mushroom uh, areas where all of a sudden in the middle of you know uh, Australia, we would have these unusually large amount of listeners. And I'm convinced that it's due almost entirely to word of mouth. Um, when it comes to the fan art on Tumblr, you know, things like that website is so good about allowing artists to create something and then share it with a very broad cross-section of other Tumblr users who may be on the other side of the world. But if you're a photographer or an artist or uh, a writer and you create work that resonates with someone who lives thousands of miles away, you still have a way to share your art with those people. Um, and I think a lot of the, the images of the characters and the sort of makeup of Nightville itself has been greatly benefited by that uh, technology. Mm -hmm. I've also heard a lot of people say that they started following the Nightville Twitter feed for a long time before even realizing that there was a podcast associated with it. Absolutely. Um, Joseph and Jeffrey managed the Twitter feed and they're, I think of them as these strange fortune cookies that appear on Twitter every once in a while. Um, but a lot of people started following the Twitter uh, feed because they were so funny and, you know, these strange little Zen jokes that they would create. And then later find that there was a larger show um, that it was attached to. Um, and I know a lot of people on Twitter also follow Welcome to Night Vale and myself and Joseph and Jeffrey to get updates on live shows or Comic-Con conventions or things like that. We, we try to use social media in a way that is both um, informative and also entertaining. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and speaking of events, too, I saw that you guys went to the uh, L.A. Podcasting Festival. Uh, yes. What's sort of what's it like um, getting into the podcasting scene and meeting other podcasters and stuff like that? We had a really great time. Um, we definitely noticed that we do something that is slightly different than what a lot of podcasts are based on. Um, certainly at the L.A. Podfest, there was a lot of amazing comedians who their show is them their show is an extension of their um, onstage routine and it involves them, you know, riffing off of certain subjects or interviewing other people. And that's not what we do. We do a scripted show where a lot of time and effort has been taken into writing and recording and producing the show. Um, you know, I find that most podcasts fall into informative or educational um, or they go in the opposite direction, which is entertainment. Um, and while we're definitely in the entertainment side of things, it's just very different than what a lot of other people are doing. And it's really nice to kind of expand people's horizons uh, to say this is the potential for what a podcast could be. Um, and then as well, getting to go to something like the LA PodFest and meeting people who are starting out or who have an idea but don't necessarily know how to develop it and talk to them about how, you know, our show is very 
low tech and is very simply produced. And the idea that if you create a show that is entertaining and interesting to you, then you will find the listeners rather than the other way around. Um, I find a lot of people are in this day and age are worried about demographics and how do we create a viral something? And, you know, of course, the answer is if you're trying to create something that will go viral, chances are it probably won't because you're trying so incredibly hard that most people will just kind of roll their eyes and be like, okay, well, that was, that was something interesting. Um, and they, people would rather find new and interesting ideas that they can say, Hey, I found this new thing. Um, it, it's part of me now. And it is something that I can claim as my own. Mm -hmm. I mean, do, do you know of any new podcast that kind of took a look at Welcome to Night Vale and said, oh, I want to do something in that vein or, oh, I didn't know you could do something so out there. I'm going to do something so out there now. Um, I've not really seen a lot of uh, imitators or copycats or things like that. But I think the idea of radio drama of this idea is nothing new. We're not doing anything uh, spectacularly um you know, unprecedented, um, you know, the idea of radio drama has been around as long as there's been radio. And it's just the idea that if you make a quality product and you put your heart and your soul into it, then other people will then look at this format that I'm sure most people would have said was dead and gone, but you breathe new life into it. Um, I think we did a an interview with um, uh, CBC in Canada and the idea that um, radio drama is something that can be appreciated by many different generations, but had all but died and we're helping to bring it back um, and interest much younger audiences into something that is a non-visual medium. Mm -hmm. See, speaking of non-visual mediums, is there uh, media? Is there anything else you can say about the um, Welcome to Night Vale novel? Um, I am not involved in the writing of it. I am trying to actually keep um, as as like I know very little about it, and I'm I'm okay with that because I want Joseph and Jeffrey to really make that novel their own and input their own ideas into it. Um, Admittedly, I hope that once they do finish it, I'm one of the first people that gets to read the advanced copy of it and uh, and enjoy it just as much as any fan would. <laughs> um, and then like other, a bunch of the episodes have been written or co-written by other authors. Um, and, you know, our audience is mostly book readers. Are any of those authors, do they have books that people should check out or anything like that? I think the Glenn David Gold episode was probably one of the the best guest writers that we had. Um, it was a really amazing episode, and you know, as a performer, I definitely felt the the sort of fresh air of of having a guest writer doing an episode. It was a lot of fun. It was written in a way that the la the language he uses is so intricate and carefully um, structured. Uh, it was just a lot of fun to perform. It, it reminded me a lot of performing uh, Shakespeare or classical theater because every detail was so nuanced and added to the overall picture of what was happening. Uh, that was a really great one. 
Mm -hmm. And he has some books that people could go check out. Um, I mean, Carter Beats the Devil is an amazing novel. It's on my bookshelf right now. It's really great. Okay, cool. And then speaking of Shakespeare, we had a listener question from Maggie Leung. She says, what is your favorite Shakespeare play and who is your favorite Shakespeare character? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I I don't know if I can narrow it down to just one. I think if I'm going to pick a comedy, a tragedy in history, it would be A Midsummer Night's Dream. Macbeth and Henry the Fourth, Part One. Um, I think all three of those. Um, I've I've been fortunate enough to be in all three of those at uh, various productions, and um, they're just amazing and beautiful to watch and to listen to. Um, much in a very similar way that Night Vale is, in that you don't. When Shakespeare was writing in Elizabethan England, you did not go see a play. Um, you went to go hear a play and all of the language that Shakespeare uses is made to build upon uh, imagery that exists only in your mind. Um, I mean, this is evident in the way the plays were staged, in the uh, the structure of the Globe Theater, the fact that it was performed outdoors during natural daylight um, in front of a crowd of people that included you know, people selling concessions and lords and ladies and prostitutes and merchants and children and animals. And all of this kind of added to this love of life that is reflected in Shakespeare's work. Um, when it comes to a, a favorite character, that's tough. Um, I, I mean, I definitely have a bucket list of Shakespeare characters that I would like to play before I die. Um, I've always wanted to play Oberon. I, I think is an amazing, fun, slightly malevolent, but also slightly, you know, loving character. Um, oh, man. Um, uh, I think it would be a lot of fun to get to play a character like... Um, uh, uh, Iago is an amazing villain. Um, it would be great to play, um, uh, Edmund in King Lear. Um, all of those, I, I obviously you can tell I'm kind of drawn <laughs> to the, the villains. Um, but I find it's only because, uh, when working in classical theater, I have a tendency to fall somewhere in between the villain and the fool. And a lot of Shakespearean theaters that I've worked for, uh, a casting director will look at me and go, you're obviously a villain. <laughs> and then another casting director will look at me and go, well, you're obviously the comedic relief. Um, and there's no convincing them otherwise. Um, I mean, I would love to play, uh, you know, Trinculo or um, Speed or someone like that, I think would be a great comedic role as well. So if people want to see you on the stage, how do they go about that? And do you have anything else theater related coming up? Um, Outside of the world of Night Vale, I perform with the New York Neo-Futurists. We do a weekly show in the East Village called Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind. Uh, We have about 15 different cast members and we rotate those cast members out. So if you go to their website, www.nynf.org, it'll have a list of who's in the cast that week. And like I said, it's all autobiographical theater. Um, It's all very present and relevant to the immediate performance. And um, you will definitely see me, Cecil Baldwin, the actor, um, as 
standing up in front of you and telling you stories from my life and stories about the world that we inhabit together rather than taking on an imaginary persona. Um, it's a lot of fun and it's a lot of audience interaction. Um, I've heard audience members say the craziest things uh, <laughs> in, fr in front of a uh, hundred people on a Friday or Saturday night. Um, it's always different and it's a good time. I mean, so like the, the segments that you've written, could you just give us a, like a, an idea of what kinds of things you talk about? Um, I've, I've talked about everything from the fact that my parents are getting older and love to go on cruises. I've talked about um, relationships I've been in. I've, oh man, uh, I, um, I've, I've taken filmmakers' work who I've appreciated and, and try to find a way to let their style influence other um, aspects of my own personal life. Like I did a play called uh, Neo Polanski Apartment Trilogy, which was uh, three different Roman Polanski films, um, the style of three different Roman Polanski films taken and written in monologue form that reflected uh, sort of New Yorkers relationship with their apartments and their neighbors and, you know, what it's like to listen to your neighbors fighting next door and not knowing how you should interact with them and and all of that, which I find was very present in, you know, films like Repulsion and The Apartment and uh, uh, or The Tenant and uh, Rosemary's Baby. Um, it's always different. Uh, a lot of times it's very political. Um, I wrote a play which was based upon uh, the kill the gays bill in Uganda um, because there was essentially an American um, a religious figure who would go over to Uganda and kind of stir up anti-gay uh, sentiments in an effort to um, allow the Ugandan government to uh, kill anyone who was out of the closet as gay, lesbian, or transgendered. And so I wrote a play reflecting that. Um, so it, it runs the, the breadth of my own personal experience. Um, and I'm allowed to kind of take those ideas and put them on stage uh, every weekend. Mm. Well, maybe soon you can write a play about what it's like to live in a quiet apartment for a change. Oh, dear God, I hope so. <laughs> okay, so uh, Rhododendron W says that the recent episode, the recent Welcome to Night Vale episode, Company Picnic, was the first episode without you uh, in it. So how did it feel to listen to an episode that you weren't involved in recording? Um, it was a blast. I... I mean, I had the opportunity to wait until the uh, 15th and listen to the episode with completely fresh ears. Um, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what Kevin and Lauren were doing from a performance aspect. Um, I knew very little about the episode. And so it gave me that thrill of excitement when you are extremely and intimately uh, close to these cast of characters, but you get a chance to um, experience an episode with fresh, with a fresh viewpoint. Now, having said that, I cannot wait to return to <laughs> Night Vale in the uh, very near future. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and then Tweet Acceptance says, do you think your character would ever die on the show? Which I guess raises the question, if you're... You know, if you're not involved in an episode, you might listen to it and find that they've killed you off, right? 
I, I hope not. <laughs> I, I hope my character never dies because then I would be out of a job and that would be really unfortunate. Um, but no, I, in all seriousness, I think that the character of Cecil is definitely beloved by the fans and the creators as well. And um, even if the story keeps expanding, uh, there's no reason for Cecil not to be uh, in the mix. Mm. I mean, how much of a time commitment is it playing Cecil? I mean, if you if you got cast as the lead in Hamlet or something, uh, would you still have time to do Cecil on the side? Oh, absolutely. Um, again, one of the great things about podcasting is that if you have a microphone and, you know, some basic computer technology, I could record this in my apartment. I can record it from the road, which we've done before when we were on tour. Um, I can record it internationally. And then it, through the magic of email, we, you know, we just need to upload it and then send it out to the fans. Um, for a time commitment, I mean, it definitely takes a little bit of time. Uh, because I'm a, a sort of a perfectionist as a performer, and I'm also a director and a writer in various other projects. So I'm constantly trying to use my outside eye to say, well, this is what the audience is expecting. How can I give them something different or something new or expand upon a character that people feel like they know extremely well. Um, and I think it's been very successful so far. Um, when I go back and listen to a lot of the earlier episodes, I had a very, it, it was very much based in community radio. Um, everything was a little bit more serious. It was a little bit more flat. Um, and as the character progressed, I realized that the more humanity I brought to the role, the more exciting the story became. Um, one of the ways that I prepare to do each episode is I go back and listen to the last episode that was released. And I try to think, okay, if that episode was particularly funny or political or scary, how can I take a different look at the new material? And then I'll try and you know, respect the words of Joseph and Jeffrey to the best of my ability and also throw in some surprises. Um, so that way it keeps everyone on their toes. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I heard you guys say that in the early days, you had tons of material already written and that as it's gone on, that <laughs> uh, that sort of uh, uh, buffer has shrunk and shrunk, especially now with the live shows. Uh, how much longer do you think you can keep to the uh, every other or every two week schedule? Is there any chance that you might have to uh, go on a hiatus or anything like that? I, I certainly hope not. I think one of the reasons that people have kept listening to our show is the fact that we try to be as consistent as possible. We release on the 1st and the 15th of every month. It's always new material. Um, you know, we try to give people something new and interesting to listen to. And I think if, it, if our reputation was a little more spotty where, you know, a month would go by or two months would go by and we didn't release anything, people would start to lose interest because then you just don't get the chance to like catch up with these characters that you feel like, you know, so well. Um, now having said that, you know, we are in the process of Joseph and Jeffrey are writing a novel. We're touring for months at a time. Um, there's a good possibility that I'm going to be performing with the Neo-Futurist at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. 
um, in Scotland. Um, so the you know calendar that of of work that we have set up definitely um, has wiggle room or room for adjustment, but we do try to keep ahead of the curve as much as possible. Um, which, you know, God bless Joseph and Jeffrey because they're writing a novel that's going to be released a year from now, while at the same time writing material that will be performed a month from now and writing material that will be performed two weeks from now. <laughs> uh, all right, cool. So that's pretty much all our time. Uh, maybe just to wrap things up, do you want to just remind people what your upcoming dates are for the live events and how they can find the podcast and anything else you just want to mention? Sure. Um, the Next big event we're doing is at Town Hall in New York City. I'm very excited to be performing in Times Square. It's a, always been a dream of mine. Uh, we're performing at Town Hall on June 4th. Uh, there are still tickets available to the 10 p.m. show, and uh, you can find that information as well as information on our upcoming July tour to Canada, the United States, San Diego Comic-Con and DashCon, and all of that is available on the Commonplace Books website, which I believe is uh, Commonplace Books slash Welcome to Night Vale. All right, so we've been speaking with Cecil Baldwin, the voice of Welcome to Night Vale. So Cecil, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Cecil Baldwin for joining us on the show. And for our panel today, we'll be discussing assholes and trolls and how to deal with them. And I'm joined by two guest geeks. So first up, we've got my good friend and longtime co-host, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor and publisher of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and the series editor of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. He's also edited many other anthologies, including the recent books The End is Nigh and Dead Man's Hand. So John, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. And also joining us today is Aaron James. He holds a PhD from Harvard and is professor of philosophy at the University of California, Irvine. He's also the author of the nonfiction books, Fairness in Practice, A Social Contract for a Global Economy, and Assholes, A Theory. So Aaron, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much. It's nice to be here. Okay, and so how this panel came about is it just seems like John and I have had to deal with a lot of assholes lately. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure many of our listeners have as well, since it seems like assholes are everywhere. And so we thought it might be useful to just have a little brainstorming session here and try to figure out why people act like such assholes and how we should deal with it. And then we discovered that Aaron had written a whole book on the subject, so he just seems like the perfect person to help us out. So Aaron, to start off with, why don't you just tell us a bit about how you got so interested in assholes? Oh yeah, the whole idea started actually while I was surfing. And um, you know, when, when surfers share waves according to rules of right-of-way, and this one particular guy breaks the rules, sort of taking people's waves in a really brazen way, and then gets really angry and yells when they complain, you know, completely legitimately. And one day, this one particular guy, kind of a regular at the place I surf, was, was coming by. And I thought, uh, you know, man, man, he's an asshole, you know, kind of in the usual way. But then I had this thought for the first time, a philosophical thought, which was, hey, wait a second, that thought, you know, he's an asshole has what philosophers call cognitive content. That is to say, it classifies the person as of a certain type, and you know he's an asshole, and the other people out there aren't, and that's you know uh, correct according to certain conditions. So I got thinking, well, what are the conditions? Maybe I should just I'll try I should try to define the term right, basically. <laughs> um, so I got working on it, and, and you know, 
uh, with a leisurely summer sort of cooked up the definition that I came up with that's that's in the book. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, why don't you tell us about that definition? Yeah, so the the basic idea is that the asshole is the guy, um, and and assholes are mainly men, by the way. <laughs> um, he's the guy who say, uh, takes special advantages in cooperative life. So maybe he cuts in line, or he uh, talks too loud on his cell phone, or he interrupts too often in a conversation, or he parks in handicap spaces, you know, in his car without a handicap. Um, where he does those things out of a sense of an entrenched sense of entitlement. So because he thinks he's uh, really smart or um, or richer than everyone else, and or just has a general sense of superiority. And the final thing is that the, the his sense of entitlement immunizes him, as I put it, against the complaints of other people. So if somebody pipes up when he cuts in line, um, you know, he'll just wall out the objection, or he'll tell him to piss off, or whatever. Um, he doesn't feel like he has to listen to the complaints of other people, you know, given a sense of entitlement. And in fact, he might feel like he's the one being disrespected uh, because his, you know, he's being questioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we all have lots of experience with assholes going back to childhood. And the first thing I really want to talk about is schoolyard bullies. Now, when I was a kid, uh, I got bullied a lot. And adults would always say to me, oh, bullies are just insecure. And you know, you just have to like talk to them and understand them and work out your problems. And it never seemed to me any of my bullies were particularly insecure. It just seems like they liked uh, <laughs> inflicting pain on other people and didn't feel any consequences for doing that. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I agree that it's not just from insecurity. Maybe some of them are, but for the most part, I think they're probably just enjoying the rush of power that they have from their physical superiority over the you know, over weaker kids and um, sort of exploring for themselves. They want to be a little bit sympathetic. They're sort of exploring their own power um, in a way that shapes their sense of themselves too as sort of effectual. Um, and maybe maybe the bully um, thinks that they're getting recognition that they think they deserve too um, at, an early, you know, at an early age when they feel sort of invisible or unrecognized. So maybe that's a little by way of sympathy. But for the most part, they're, they're just exercising power and kind of exploring it. Uh, dominating other people in a callous way and uh, sort of taking advantage of what the social situation allows in the schoolyard. You know, if bullying isn't policed very carefully by, you know, teachers or administrators, then, uh, or, you know, other students, then the bully knows that they can get away with certain things and, you know, kind of create a reign of terror and control. And, um, you know, and they're just sort of enjoying it just like a dictator of a country does who rises to power and got his hand on the oil spigot and that can now dole out uh, money to the generals to keep him and keep him in power. Um, so it's it's not that different, a kind of a sort of almost amoral pleasure in the exercise of exercise of power. Mm -hmm. I mean, John, what was your experience with bullies uh, kind of growing up? Oh, well, I mean, I definitely had my fair share of bullies. And, and I, I mean, I was certainly always uh, very frustrated by the school's la uh, decision to not do anything about it. I had this I had this spinal defect when uh, I was younger, and it was like it's like scoliosis. But instead of deviating to the left or right, it deviated back to front. It's called kyphosis. And so I had a bit of a curve to my spine. And so kids used to make fun of me all the time about that. And, and it was, they were just merciless. Um, but uh yeah, I mean, even even if they were just insecure, it doesn't make you feel any better about it. Uh huh. And how about Aaron? Just personally, did you deal with bullies growing up? Did you have to fight anyone ever? I mean, I I didn't. I think I did get into a fight in third grade, but it wasn't with a bully. <laughs> it was the <laughs> fight I ever got into. 
uh, I don't I don't remember a lot of bullies. I was never bullied anyway. I was a kid, but but as a surfer, believe it or not, there are a lot of bullies, uh, and there's a lot of threats of physical violence. Um, partly because people. Well, people no, are, I saw Point Break, so I mean, I yeah. <laughs> this is familiar. Maybe <laughs> uh, I mean it's not just that's not just Hollywood. It really is sort of a routine thing for surfers who are competing over waves and being contentious, and people who are sort of quick to scrap for a fight sort of can use that as a way of you know. Um, not just enforcing their rights, but trying to get special privileges in the lineup. And, and if you, if you complain, you know, then somebody can immediately say, what are you going to do about it? You know, and then there's sort of a threatening fight <laughs> and there's all kinds of versions. It's like, there actually are lots of fights that break out. Um, but in, in, in other cases, you know, it's sort of a test of will, you know, who can sort of posture, um, and, you know, be the most intimidating and who will back down first. And, um, but so, Surfers do, uh, at least certain surfers do, really quickly go, even right away, go to just go to threats of violence. Um, so it happens a, a fair bit, especially when you get to the more hot-headed types, who, you know, who, you know, who, whose whole sense of self-respect is tied up with, you know, being able to stand their own in a fight. <laughs> it's a very silly kind of ritual, but unfortunately, still the way of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, like um, a lot of my thoughts about bullying were really uh, influenced by uh, Orson Scott Card's novel Ender's Game, which I read a lot as a kid and, and deals with bu bullying very prominently. And the approach that the main character in that book takes is that if someone bullies you, you just have to beat the shit out of them so badly, <laughs> that they'll be too terrified to ever uh, like look at you the wrong way again. And I don't think this is the right approach at all, because it, <laughs> it, it seems to me that if you beat someone that badly, then they're humiliated and they have to come back and get their revenge on you at some point. Yes. And that if you're going to fight someone, it seems like you have to like fight well enough to show that you can't be pushed around, but not so well that you humiliate the other person so much that it, it leads to a whole cycle of revenge. Mm -hmm. uh, curiously, that's also advice that people give to people about to go into prison. Oh, well. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it I suppose it also doesn't work to just say, look, um, I'm not going to fight. If we fight, we fight to the death, you know, and I might arrange to have somebody kill you instead of actually fighting you myself. You know? <laughs> I mean, because, you know, then it's sort of all, but, but that brings the fact that nobody ever says that when it, I, I presume it's like not very expensive to uh, admittedly illegally pay somebody you know, uh, to have a bully, uh, you know, killed or whatever. Um, and okay, so 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 the philosophy professor is telling us if someone cuts in, <laughs> cuts in front of you in line, you got to kill him. Like other, <laughs> otherwise, your problems are just no, never going to end. The the fact that nobody thinks of that possibility is an interesting way that there's this sort of um, ethos around fighting. There's a way of sort of civil civilized fist fighting or perceived civilized fist fighting. You know, fighting like men or whatever. You know, in which say for surfers, you know, both surfers carefully remove their flip-flops and place them <laughs> to the side so they don't get muddy or dirty, right? And then, and then there's this dance that happens, right, in which there's certain ideas about what counts as, you know, a fair blow or whatever, in which they're going to have a test of strength that, you know, is supposed to settle what? <laughs> you know, I mean, like, yeah. why would the test of strength or courage, you know, settle who's to be respected or not? I mean, morally speaking, you think, look, this can't settle the moral question of equality or who's who should defer to whom, um, or who has right of way on a wave, or who's you know going to be deferential? But 
um, there's this set of rituals um, anyway that you know are sort of taken for granted um, among the bullying types. And um, and in some sense, you know, when someone is threatened to fight, they're expecting you to sort of take up this almost like a chivalrous way. You know, you're not allowed to like escalate radically. You can't pull a gun or whatever. Um, you know, you can't you know pick up a rock or a stick and start you know clobbering the person. You're supposed to just you know scrap it out with mere like physical strength and courage. Um, and it's so it's a it's a strange kind of highly structured kind of social practice, a kind of dance. Um, but you might think like as a as a morally serious person who's truly civilized, you think, look, violence is we've aren't we beyond the need for violence? We have the state to intervene to protect us from violence, and disputes aren't going to be settled through violence, properly speaking. So why would we even go to it in the first place? Um, if somebody's attacking you and you just make no effort to defend yourself, then you're or not, you know, invoking. You're not letting them draw you into this um, to this dance. I mean, if you just don't respond, then you know, and maybe that involves you know getting punched and just not responding. Um, then even the bully within those same norms, you know, uh, I mean, is may not isn't necessarily going to keep on going because once it won't uh, sort of establish their power further if you're not uh, responding. You know, they can't if they can't win a sort of a fair fight or whatever, then they won't get. Um, they don't want to get the status that they're sort of shooting for. So, um, so in some way, just nonviolent, um, you know, re resistance um, or just fleeing or you know things like that um, is is really the best course. Hmm. I mean, you know, a major inspiration for this panel topic is I, I went to see a movie <laughs> a movie recently, and the guy sitting in front of sitting in front of me and a little bit to the side had his phone out. Uh, through the first like 15 minutes of the movie, just holding it right up in front of his face, waving it around. And it was so annoying. And um, finally, I sort of tapped the back of his chair and said, like, could you please turn off your phone? And he turned it off and I go back to watching the movie. And then a second later, I hear his voice. and He's like, don't hit me again. Do you understand? And I look over and he's like turned around glaring at me. And you could just tell from his voice that he was just really, really stupid and had really, really poor impulse control. <laughs> <laughs> and I was I was really afraid he was going to like just come at me in the yeah. middle of this movie, you know. And uh, so I've been ever since then I've been thinking about that whole situation of just people being assholes in movie theaters. And I just want to go to a movie and not have people shining their phone in my eyes and talking loudly behind me. And like, what, yeah. what do you what do you even do about that? Yeah, um, that to me. Should I answer? Uh, how about John? What do you think? Oh. You, <laughs> but what did you think about my story there? Oh, yeah, no, well, I mean, I definitely relate to it. I've certainly, I haven't had that exact experience, but I've certainly, like, that kind of asshole-ish behavior is, it, it, it drives me crazy. Like, I, I just can't stand it. Like, especially, like, in a movie theater, because, like, I don't know, like, I, I guess I kind of treat movies, like, with a certain amount of respect in that even if it's not, like, going to be a great movie, I want to go and have the experience of watching it without having all these outside annoyances bothering me. And just so, like, you know, anytime you're in the movies and, and you have people who are like, you know, sort of kicking your seat and everything. And it's like, how do you not know that that's not a thing that you do? It's like, this is not your living room, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, where, you know, cause they, 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 they talk and they, uh, you know, they just, you know, crinkle their bags of, of goodies or whatever. And, and just like, it, it's like, they think that they just like, it, it goes back to what Aaron was saying about entitlement. It's just like, people feel like they're so entitled to just do whatever they want. Like when they're, even when they're in a public place like that. Um, 
as far as what to do about it, you know, I, I wish that there wasn't a, a technological solution. Like, I wish that I could just have an app on my phone that could, like, tattle on this person and, you know, like, alert the ushers or whatever so that they deal with it. Because, you know, it's not my job. Like, and like you said, I mean, you almost, you potentially could have gotten in a fight with this guy for trying to tell him to, to turn off his phone. Um, it's like, but, like, if we could just have something that we could alert the ushers to let them come deal with it, that would be one thing. Um, but alas, we don't have anything like that. And of course, that, that, that only would potentially work in a movie theater situation, not in all the other situations where you might run into assholes in the world. Well, and of course, this whole time I'm thinking about that guy who got shot and killed in the movie theater. You know, mm -hmm. when he got, I don't know if you read about that, that the, there was just like, a, you know, some guy asked him to turn his phone off and he said, fuck you. And the guy threw popcorn at him and then somebody shot mm -hmm. somebody. And yeah, like, that's just one of the like awesome things about living in the United States is like, you have to worry about every like, <laughs> dumbass in the movie theater packing a gun you know yeah yeah i mean i, I mean I'm, i mean it's a sort of i don't know sad or tragic fact of life i mean it's just a general fact that in some cases it's not going to be worth it for you to enforce your real rights in this case to have the guy just take it easy and i mean if he's really going to act out and, and threaten violence or, or like a, a huge amount of aggression over uh, over such a small you know and fair request then it's better to just move switch seats and enjoy the film than um know stage a grand a strength a grand effort to get the guy to, to yeah <laughs> like i don't want it to be my, my epitaph like he died <laughs> he died enforcing movie theater norms yeah exactly know? i mean and there's they're like much greater injustices that is a real injustice but there are bigger injustices to die for in the world you know i mean if mm -hmm. you're going to go out you know like <laughs> do it for something really worthy and important <laughs> you know um there's maybe a something of a practical lesson. I mean, in some cases, you just have to avoid and diffuse those encounters, and that's frustrating for us. But there is something you can do to be a little bit proactive about them before, especially before they sort of become tense and heightened. And that is um, make a polite uh, request calmly before you're upset. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, partly like inconsiderate behavior or assholes are trading on the fact that it's sort of difficult or uncomfortable for people to sort of intervene and, and ask. Um, and then we, we often do it, but only after we're like pretty pissed off. Right. And mm -hmm. so then we sort of respond in an angry way or an accusatory way. Uh, but a good way of trying to preempt that whole dynamic is to sort of quickly make a very polite, calm and maybe even, you know, respectful request and make, make a joke. Like you could say, um, uh, very quickly on, if the person's checking you say, Hey, I know I'm totally addicted to my phone too, but, uh, can we just make sure that, um, uh, we're not checking the phone in the, in the during the film or whatever, you know, like that. And then they might say, "Oh, okay, sure." You give them an opportunity to just give a, have a gracious out, as it were, as opposed to defending their mm -hmm. uh, defending their their themselves and their righteousness. So, and and even that can even work with somebody who's really really is. That's true if you don't know whether they're going to turn become they really are an asshole or not. But even with somebody who you know is an asshole, not necessarily in a violent moment it still can be worth making a polite request without any hint of accusation um, because sometimes they'll do it. Um, but the, if the person really isn't going to listen, then it's much better for you to find other ways of um, sort of satisfying yourself and your own demands for recognition, like complaining to friends or um, mm -hmm. making a stand on someone. You know, I mean, it's for some other Complaining about it on your podcast. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> there you go. I mean, we need, that's really important for us to do, and, but there are a lot of ways to do it, and um, it's natural to want to exact respect from the asshole himself. But they, their condition is such that they're sort of dug in and 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 won't recognize other people. And so, 
you, the kind of tragedy of the asshole situa- encounter is that the best thing is to give up the thing you really are entitled to, which is to get them to listen, um, just because it's not worth fighting for that injustice mm-hmm. necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, that's, that's something that I think we all probably need to really hear in terms of, uh, you know, saying something calmly and, uh, you know, right at the start of the, of, of the annoyance rather than letting it build up. Cause I certainly, I know I always let that happen. Like I, cause I, I won't even be motivated to say anything until I'm like furious and, it, and it's just like it. And then even then I don't want to say anything. And so, um, yeah, it's very hard to actually convince yourself to do it. But of course, yeah, it's like g- given how, how potentially dangerous it actually is to actually, you know, confront an asshole since like Dave was saying, you know, you never know what this asshole is going to be packing. Um, yeah, it's I mean, something to definitely consider, especially for uh, a lot of our listeners who are potentially like us and uh, or like Dave and I, and that uh, you know we're sort of geeky and not necessarily uh, prime physical pe- specimens. Uh, I mean, Dave, Dave, whoa, would, Dave, whoa, Dave, Dave would on. argue. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I mean, just 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 for our, like you know, I know I know this is an audio podcast, so people maybe don't know what I look like, but I'm <laughs> I'm six two. I used to play lacrosse and rugby. I mean, yeah. it's it's. I mean, I'm really geeky, but it's by no means a foregone conclusion that I would get my ass kicked in a fight. I mean. Right. I think this guy probably would have kicked my ass because he was really big, but yeah. I could I could at least put up I could put up a pretty good fight in most situations. I mean I I mean I'm pretty big too, but I mean I, I would have I, I would expect myself to get my ass kicked basically. I mean for in most cases. I mean, you know, I, I'm probably big enough that I would maybe deter some people from trying because they don't know, but you know, I'm I mean, I'm not much of a fighter. Hmm. So I'll speak for only myself then. Okay. Uh, yeah. Not Dave. Not All Dave. Right. Correction noted. <laughs> um, well, you know, after I posted this on Facebook, this story, and um, one of my friends who lives in Austin was saying there's a movie theater there called the Alamo Draft House, and they have a zero tolerance policy toward, uh, you know, being on your phone or talking during the movie or whatever. And they and they actually have an ad for the theater. It's it's absolutely hilarious. So it's this really bitchy phone call that somebody called and left a message on their answering machine after she got kicked out of one of their movie theaters about how she'll never come back. And so they just play this message. And then at the end, it says, like, thanks for not coming back to our theater. <laughs> and, uh, and they just apparently they just show that before every movie. And God, I wish there was a place like that in New York somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, well, that's the other solution, right? I mean, part of these encounters happen because people know that they can sort of push the boundaries for, you know, where they can break social norms without being held accountable um, because, they're they know they're not going to get you know a full court press you know for enforcement if they just have to deal with you complaining trying to hold them accountable then they feel like oh I can you know I can they can deal with that they can blow it off their usual defense mm-hmm. okay but but even in a normal movie theater right before every movie there's like two messages mm-hmm. telling you not to use your phone during the movie and so when when if if I'm sitting there using my phone after I must have seen hundreds of messages in my life saying not to use your phone during the movie and then someone tells me that it's bothering them please turn it off. What's going through my head as an asshole that I think the problem is with them? Yeah, right. I mean, there's, there's, so they, they don't, the asshole's perfectly aware of the social norms and they're perfect. And they also think that other people ought to keep the norms and they're pissed off when other people are violating them. But they tell themselves a story, you know, well, you know, like Leona Helmsley, taxes are for the little people, you know, and they think, you know, I'm, they, style themselves as special in some way or they don't um you know they're self-important you know i have important calls to make i have to check my phone you know um sometimes it's a specific sense of entitlement you know that that you can pin down one that they sort of use over and over again tell themselves stories about how why they can make an exception of themselves in other cases it's sort of just a diffuse sense that i'm special and the normal rules don't apply to me 
and you know um other people ca of course can't uh, you know expect me to behave just like them you know um so it, it it could be any number of of different sort of rationalizations and uh the state of mind that the asshole has is just one of being stably disposed and entrenched in some such rationalizations such that they make themselves out to have um, special entitlements. And when they're questioned, you know, as they naturally can be, because they're often pretty flimsy rationalizations, you know, they just react in a defensive way to sort of wall out. You know, they're not going to take the objections seriously. And so that's, so that's the, that's the basically the asshole's way of being. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I was talking about that with some friends afterward. I'm like, you know, th this guy's having his phone out, which can't be that important, provoked this nasty confrontation with me. Is there any chance that he's going to not take his phone out at the very next movie he goes to? Like, even the slightest chance? Hmm. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, if, if things can get bad enough, he might decide it's inconvenient, right? For example, if, if, if in your case, a big scuffle ensued and then the, you know, the movie theater people had to come out and police it, you know, then maybe he doesn't want all that hassle, right, uh, for the next time. But in that case, he's sort of, he, he won't pull out his phone, but for the wrong reasons. He, mm -hmm. he won't pull it out to avoid hassle because in that case, you know, the norm was enforced uh, enough to make it inconvenient for him to do it. Yeah, it's just sort of Pavlovian at that point. Yeah, or, mm -hmm. yeah, or he just counts the costs and thinks it's not worth it. I, I mean, or if you, you complain, you know, complain, oh, he doesn't want an argument right now because he's, you know, so maybe he reins it in. But he's not doing that out of recognition of, you know, your rightful status to, you know, ask him to obey a perfectly reasonable uh, social norm. Um, that's not why he's going to do it next time if he doesn't pull out the phone. So, you know, it's just because, you know, the movie, he might, the movie he might think isn't as enjoyable if people start complaining, start harping on him, you know, or if they don't show him the respect he deserves by just leave, leaving him alone. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that way, he might sort of fall in the line with the social norm. But that's, it's not, still not real recognition of, you know, the claims and interests of the other people around him. Uh, all right. So, I mean, there's a lot more I could say about movie theater assholes, <laughs> but given our time limits, I have to move on to our next subject, which is a big, big subject, which is internet assholes. <laughs> now, um, the natural home of the asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, their natural habitat, right? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, and what, I mean, some of our younger listeners may have trouble believing this, but there was no internet when John and I were kids, right? So when the internet came in, it was it was kind of shocking because uh, I had as a kid I had always imagined that most adults were generally like adult, right? They were mature and reasonable and and stuff. And then when the internet came along, it, it was just really shocking to see what giant assholes most people were when they were anonymous and you know could just say whatever they wanted without consequence. So I don't know, uh, Aaron, what do you think about, about that phenomenon of just like the internet laying bare, how many assholes are among us? Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think it does bring out, uh, bring out the assholes partly because it's just e even easier for them to, you know, act like an asshole in the ways that they otherwise would. But I mean, I think it maybe even more interesting is the way that distinctive features of the, of the social context um, and the medium um, make it so that people who aren't otherwise assholes start acting like them, right? Um, it's a couple of things. It's partly anonymity, although I don't think that's an, it's entirely that. Because a lot of times people, even though they're not anonymous, are still saying completely, you know, intemperate and rude uh, things, you know, sort of without really even a sense that um, 
there's another person actually receiving you know, and being hurt by what's what's said. Yeah, so, you know, as one, now that we're on the subject of the internet, it's like my favorite part of this discussion. And, um, you know, one, one of the reasons that we actually thought to do this is because actually we get a lot of assholes commenting on our our posts on wired.com where, where the podcast airs. And, um, and the thing that makes it even more fun for me to actually, for us to be able to do this, this panel is that the assholes that comment and leave these asshole comments over there, they never listen to the podcast. It's like they, they yeah. see the art, they see the article um, on wired and then they, they skim it or whatever. They generally don't even read that, but they're, they're compelled to leave a comment and uh, leave all sorts of assholeish comments on, on a variety of, in a variety of manners. Um, and so it's just kind of awesome that we can actually have this discussion and they will comment on the post and they won't even know. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, uh, I mean, we just have the experience over and over again where someone will post kind of a dickish comment and you'll address it and it'll lead to a dialogue where it gets more or less resolved. And then someone else will post the exact same dickish comment with no knowledge <laughs> that this whole conversation has already happened. And it just happens over and over and over again. So this actually gave me, I think it's a brilliant idea for a product. I want to call it Asshat Newsreader. <laughs> and so it like, it's like a newsreader, but all it shows you is the headline. And then there's a box for you to type in your dickish comment. And so <laughs> it's just like a list like that. So it just saves you the trouble of like skipping over the text and the other comments and just like removes them from your uh, computer entirely. Because there are a lot of people out there, I think. I think there's a big market from this, just based on my experience. <laughs> well, there absolutely is. I mean, I think that, I mean, in part, though, they, the person who's going to do this has to have a sense that other people are going to be reading the article with interest. So even if they don't read it, they sort of feel like, oh, this is my chance to be seen, to shine, you know, and to, or to get attention, um, sort of to appear in the eyes of others. And to be, you know, if not respected because they're saying sensible things, but at least heard, or, you know. Um, Sort of like the bully who, you know, if he's not going to be respected, he wants to be feared, you know. So there's that kind of basic motivation, I think. Uh, you know, you see this a lot with book reviews, too. And it's it's kind of curious because, you know, sites like Amazon have made, you know, anybody with a computer able to post a, a review of a book. Um, and they actually can be really damaging. And uh, a lot of times people, they post these, uh, they post these reviews, which obviously are criticizing a book or whatever product for being something that's not intended to be, you know, so like, like I had anthologies. And so a lot of times, you know, you get people who are complaining that it's a book of short stories and not a novel. And it's like, well, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's not what it is. Uh, it's not really fair to criticize it for being something entirely different from what you hoped it would be. Um, but, uh, but the, that, that also sort of brings up this thing that I've seen from time to time where you get reviewers, not even just on Amazon, like actual professional reviewers who have a review in some publication somewhere, like they'll post a link to it on Facebook and then they'll tag the author, even though it's a negative review. And like, why would you, it's like, it's like, Hey buddy, tap, tap on the shoulder. <laughs> like, Hey, did you see this terrible review of your book? I wrote, aren't, aren't you going to be very pleased with me that I pointed this out to you? And it's just it's so puzzling. And like I saw this happen on Twitter just the other day. Like somebody uh, read Paolo Bacigalupi's novel, uh, uh, The Drowned Cities, and she's like a professor. And she just like tagged him in the tweet and like was like, basically like, do we really need more of this kind of book? And I'm like, <laughs> what are you doing? That's like, like what, like what an asshole thing to do. And um, I'm just, it, it, I think it goes back to what Aaron was saying about like the disconnect between uh, dealing with a person face to face and, and dealing with this sort of uh, this facade of a person that you sort of perceive on the internet, um, even though it's actually a real person behind there. Um, so yeah, but it's just like, it, it's funny. It's funny how, how the internet like strips away those, uh, 
those barriers that people would otherwise uh, respect. Yeah, and, and I mean, and that raises the issue of should the author respond to that or not? Mm -hmm. And John and I have had kind of a long running disagreement on this where I, I, I'm, you know, John's of the opinion that you should basically never respond to bad reviews. And I'm of the opinion that the internet has changed the dynamic of that, where it's much more appropriate for the author to respond to a review when it's a real, when it's in some way unfairly personal, you know, like if the person's like, I didn't like this book because the writing style was bad or something, like don't respond to that, that's stupid. But if, if they're saying really nasty stuff about you, you know, nasty personal stuff about you, then I think that the d dynamic becomes more like a heckler heckling a stand-up comedian, um, where the, the stand-up comedian is much more justified in shutting that person down um, because the person is just being, you know, sort of brazenly aggressive in a public place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose it's tricky. I mean, if the person is just baiting you, then they'd love it if you respond. Then, um, you know, they're kind of winning you, you know, in some sense, because you're taking the bait. Um, but I, so I suppose you'd want to have some specific thing that you want to point out or correct for, for everyone else for that to be uh, worthwhile. I mean, I said my own <laughs> feelings of frustration about the Amazon page for the book about assholes, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is, uh, I mean, so, you know, some people would write, you know, careful, thoughtful uh, reviews and, uh, but then they'd get buried, you know, underneath people sort of who would say very intemperate things or like you say, didn't really appreciate the point of the book or, or, or missing something or just sort of have some other extra grind and they want to express a, a primal scream, you know, or they <laughs> insult me, you know, kind of, um, and uh, so I didn't respond to any of this stuff, but it did kind of wear on me. Um, and partly because, because even the bad ones wouldn't necessarily get buried or, you know, people can sort of say whether they find it's helpful or not. And that can suppress some of the bad ones, mm -hmm. but some of the ones were that, uh, wouldn't get suppressed. They'd still be hanging around. So it was felt it's like somebody, so it was this, this terrible, feels like this terrible thing where somebody can just sort of take a crap on your book with no merit, you know, and your yeah. only hope is that people who read those things sort of understand that that's sort of how these things go. They're not really serious about, you know, they're not going to take it seriously. But actually, so I, I was sort of bothered by those things and, and then didn't spend much time reading it because I, you know, think, didn't think there was much point to it. But I was very pleased finally when somebody just straight out called me an asshole on the Amazon review page. <laughs> That just makes completely obvious how degraded this whole exchange is. <laughs> so nobody can miss that this is just like trolling and trashing and gar this is just a kind of garbage thing. Um, and maybe maybe it's a little better now over time because some of that stuff has got suppressed. But I felt very gratified actually when I was called an asshole just because <laughs> it made it obvious to anyone else that they shouldn't take this seriously. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I think if you're trying to decide how to respond to like whether and how to respond to someone, it's important to figure out whether you're dealing with just sort of like a dickish comment from a normal person, uh, a dickish comment from an asshole, or a dickish comment from a troll, right? Yeah. Because if it's a dickish comment from a normal person, like 90% of the time, if you reply and you're calm and friendly and reasonable and, you know, try to have a dialogue with them, they almost instantly apologize and say, oh, that was a little harsh. You know, I didn't like this, right. but, but I was, you know, I should have been more polite, whatever. Um, and then, but then it can be hard to know whether, you know, which of those categories it is. Whereas the, the distinction I would make between an asshole and a, and a true troll is an asshole like means the stuff they're saying and a troll yes. doesn't. Right. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I've, def I've definitely had that experience from people, not just on the Amazon thing, but people who write me with emails about the book. There's a lot of email. And then some people say very like strong, almost insulting things. And I write back, I, I return, you know, all the email. 
and I say, try to say, you know, consider it, th- you know, thank you for reading thing. I'll ignore some of the criticism, but I'll address some of the concerns or whatever. And then as you say, some people write back immediately, oh, I'm sorry. Once it's sort of, we're on a civil tone, then they, they lose all of the edge. Um, and so I guess there's people posting um, like that uh, uh, for sure. But that still raises this interesting question of like, why would they address somebody even over an email, which is a direct, more direct form of communication anyway? Why would they address them in sort of a slash and burn way? You know, they're not thinking of it as, as a normal, even in that case, that's not a troll, right? Who, who really is baiting and goading and, and uh, taking advantage maybe of a, another person's failure to appreciate the, you know, anonymous nature or, in, you know, the lack of expectations of sincerity. These other people are thinking of it as an extension of normal communication, and yet they're basically swearing at a stranger. <laughs> for mm-hmm. reason. Um, you know, and maybe they correct once they get an actual response, but it's a strange thing that they don't start out thinking that I am addressing, um, you know, a person who's real uh, in the first instance. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, like Felicia Day uh, talks about this. I mean, it, it's so funny sometimes, you know, someone will post a comment and say like, oh, I hate Felicia Day. She's so annoying and fake, whatever. And if Felicia Day actually posts a response and says like, you know, I'm sorry you feel that way, you know, what should I be doing differently in your opinion? Then the person half the time will be like, oh my God, Felicia Day is talking to me. Hi, Felicia, I love you. You know, and it's just like, you know, it's like you're not a real person, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, people just like are so used to just, yeah, like you're in your living room and you just say whatever you want at the TV and no one cares. The idea that like that person might actually hear you and respond (laughs) <laughs> like is is like not even something that's in people's mind. Yeah, and of course, I mean, speaking of Felicia Day, that brings up the potentially the worst cesspool of the internet, asshole, uh, YouTube. Uh, you know, um, to the extent that actually there's a, a brilliant uh, satire uh, team that do, uh, called YouTube Comment Reconstructions, um, and so there's this team of guys that they pick some stupid flame war on in YouTube comments and they reenact it, but like they're sort of like Shakespearean trained actors. Uh-huh. Um, it's so hilarious, but it acts, I mean, it obviously points out the complete absurdity of these stupid flame wars that you end up in a, on, on YouTube. Um, I mean, you know, not that you even need a flame war to get going to have it be awful. I mean, almost every YouTube post will have, uh, some horrible, horrible comment within like the first two comments, you know, um, and it's just like a rule. And like, it's I, I think I think YouTube is where where the sort of dictum came from. Uh, you know, don't read the comments. Um, although it's it's been happening, it's basically being applied to almost everything now, especially like any kind of uh, news article, um, like on the newspaper website that has anything to do with politics. Um, it's just like the first comment's going to be so, like if you agree with the article, the first comment's going to be something that you find horribly offensive. Um, so. But yeah, YouTube though, the, and uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's kind of its own ecosystem, and it's bizarre and how how much hate there is there. Uh, mm-hmm. Any any theories about what the deal with that is? Well, uh, I, I thought you were going to say, John, that it brings up how much worse women are treated on the internet. Oh, than- well, that too, yeah, yeah, because it's so appearance based uh, and and misogynist otherwise. Yeah, I guess the only thing I can think of is there's sort of an abuse of something that is potentially a valuable social function. So if you think of the heckler in the comedy club or, you know, or in a music club, um, and there's somebody like a comedian is truly like abysmal, not just like making an effort, but really abysmal or, or a musician who plays like truly terrible music. And the heckler has some need to yell out, you know, you suck, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and then now everybody else, now that could be an interfere interruption, but other people might actually feel like, 
yeah, I'm glad that we've established that this sucks because it's an offense against like our sense, our our appreciation for the enterprise, mm. say comedy or or music or I mean, I feel this almost every time I hear a, a Kenny G song. You know, I want to yell out, "You suck!" and if there was like a Kenny G website, I'd want to like trash it or <laughs> so, and I want to, I want to tell other people, you have to know that this is not good music, you know, or, so, you know, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Some- okay. But, but then what if, what if Kenny G responded and he was really polite and he's like, I'm sorry, I don't, you don't like my music, but don't you think you're being a little harsh here? Yeah. I just, I actually just read an interview by him where he's discussing thing, you know, and I, and I did have that own, I didn't in- interact with him obviously, but I, but I, <laughs> part of me, I thought, oh, well, Kenny G, he is a, you know, a real person who has a mind that, you know, is sent, can be sensible and all that, you know, so he just a very, obviously very different and maybe bad taste or, um, um, not that he's not a talented musician. It's sort of what he's choosing to, to do with his talents. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I mean, I did have that sort of self-correcting experience but in that case like the part of me that can resonate with is you feel like there really is something important to take a stand for that the group or the you know the people involved just aren't really aware of and um it can be it can be worth um breaking some norm of civility to stand up for that mm-hmm. um i do want to talk a bit more about how to respond to assholes and trolls and stuff i mean sort of my working theory for how how you should do this is that if it's a dickish comment from a normal person you should reply politely if it's a dickish comment from an asshole you should reply politely or ignore it and if it's a comment from a true troll you should ignore it mm. um but sometimes you make a mis- you 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 think someone's an asshole but they're actually a troll and now you're in a conversation with them and it becomes obvious that they're actually just a true troll and then the question is what do you do at that point and mm. Um, I'm not quite sure. I mean, the, the best solution I found is just, I mean, you want to be like completely without emotion, right? Cause the, the troll's whole like joy in life is to like, see you lose your composure. So you want to show like absolutely no emotion whatsoever. Um, and what I've found so far works the best is just to like say really, really boring stuff. And, <laughs> and then they'll, they'll, they'll just get bored eventually and go away. Cause it's, it's not fun if you're just saying like long, really boring things in response to their constant goading. <laughs> that's good yeah actually dave has some uh epic he, he displayed <laughs> some epic uh troll fighting skills uh in a couple of recent posts uh we could probably uh, uh point the links out to you or maybe dave you, you remember which episodes they were but um there was a couple recent uh podcast episodes that the post just had like a ton of different comments and um and i saw dave was replying to them and i was like I, at first because you know I, I like he was saying I, I tend to say don't argue back with reviews and whatever and comments on a post like that are kind of like reviews uh but i went i was like following it along and i'm like wow man that was actually pretty impressive it's like you know because like he said he sort of turned some people around that were being dicks at the at the start and uh um i think it actually ended up making it a good thing and because well first of all it made the comment section lively you know there was a lot of comments and so anybody who was scrolling past they would see there was a lot of discussion uh but then also yeah like i think he definitely uh mollified the concerns of some of the the people who were detractors Mm -hmm. um Oh, yeah. And I did want to give in, in our most recent post, I did want to give a shout out to Vlad Levin and Danny from Barcelona for sticking up for us. I really appreciated that, hmm. you guys. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, oh, uh, well, you know, actually, that brings up uh, another thing, too, is like, you know, um, in, in a case where you have a post uh, anywhere and it's like there there isn't a lot of comment activity. If there's that one troll that leaves a comment there, it, it's awful for you, because then like if you're the creator of that post, 
the only comment there that everyone who comes to the page will see is this comment from a troll. And the same thing happens with a book review. Like if you only have one review on Amazon and somebody gives it a one star and, and like the and it's just a complete asshole review, it's like that's the only thing people will see when they go to your see your book. And so, you know, you sort of have to hope that somebody who knows better otherwise will will, you know, get the book anyway and then post their review regardless of what um, evidence there is that the book might suck on the website because of of the asshole review. Um, so that becomes kind of a problem because I've had that a couple of times where I've had smaller books that just didn't get a lot of reviews. And so they only had like four or five, but like three of them were like asshole reviews. Um, and so it, it, you know, tanks your star rating. So it makes it look like the book sucks, even though it actually is, you know, I mean, most, most uh, non-assholes would consider that it's a pretty good thing, but you know, yeah. it's... Well, you- yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there, there's just like a quirk of human psychology that tilts things toward bad reviews, because if somebody like listens to a podcast and they like it, mm-hmm. they're like, hey, that was good. And they go about their day. Whereas if something pisses them off about it, then they go and post a comment. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the upset comment, the irate comments are massively overrepresented, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the, among the posts. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, in my own experience with Amazon and then also... Um, you know, I, there was a book excerpt that was published on Salon um, before the book uh, came out for the Assholes book, and then uh, which which really got a like a huge amount of discussion on the Salon page, but then also on Reddit there was mm-hmm. like a, a got over that. So, but in comparing the two uh, things, um, I mean, the Salon section, which was just placed on order, you know, of posting sort of most recent comment appeared. I mean, it was it was just it was awful. <laughs> I mean, I, I was huh. so. I mean, there was really a lot of traffic, but the the amount of just you know, uh, ter- you know, uh, the abuses of the kind we've been talking about was just astounding. But then on the Reddit side, there was a, a, a ton of discussion too. But because it had, by the time I started to really catch up with it, they, you know, people were always upvoting or downvoting. The stuff was helpful. So basically, the, the reasonable and sensible discussion had already floated to the top and the garbage stuff was suppressed. And that seemed uh, pretty valuable. But then now on the Amazon page, they do a kind of mixed thing. So they'll, they'll have um, some votes for helpful or not helpful. But then they also have, a, I guess, a column, on, I think it's on the side, where the most recent com- uh, posts appear. Mm-hmm. So um, somebody can just keep on feeding, you know, trashy comments, and then the people will just will see them, even if um, everybody is uh, immediately saying it's not, not a helpful uh, post. Mm-hmm. And at, at one point, actually, they, they were, I remember seeing uh, when the book first came out, there was like a, f- a few of those. Um, and uh, I think people from the press wrote their own comments to try to bury it. Basically, you have to sort of do that stuff so that it just doesn't get you know, attention that it just doesn't, doesn't deserve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, uh, what I, like, like John was saying, like the comments and the traffic helps it, even if it's from trolls. So like whenever I'm getting really, really just exasperated with a troll, I just try to tell myself that, that... You know, every time every time this person comes back to this page to post a obnoxious comment, it's just like, you know, more traffic for our site. It's, you know, pushing our stats up. You know, I like to think of, I'm like some monster in a horror movie, like you know, like Godzilla or something where they try to blow it up with a nuclear bomb that only makes it stronger. Like, I try to be like, I try to be like that. You know, you can't, you know, <laughs> your attacks only make me strong, only make me more powerful. I win. I win either way. <laughs> you know, I'm always surprised, actually, when I do find a site that actually seems mostly devoid of trollish comments. Like, and I would have actually expected Wired to have a higher class of commenter, just because I mean, it's a very intellectual type of publication. Um, and so, I, I was kind of surprised at how how much vitriol there was there. But like, Io9 is actually a case where I'm really surprised that it's as 
uh, sensible as it usually is, you know, um, the in the comments. Uh, it's like there's any number of posts that I, I've seen over there where I was like, uh, where I scrolled down and I see the comments start, and I actually found like useful posts in the comments. Like I, I was like, wow, reading the comments actually increased my understanding of this topic instead of like made me want to feel like I need to go take a shower or you know <laughs> destroy all of humanity because it's terrible. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it's always surprising when you discover those, but it's nice. It's nice that there's still some of that out there. I mean, I know partially it has to do with commenting systems and whether or not the sites are moderated. Um, but uh, but still, even with moderation, it's so hard to keep all of that out of there that um, it, it's so rare to actually find a site where you actually can read the comments. Mm -hmm. Well, I, th I think the problem with Wired.com is that it's a big enough site that you get the YouTube effects, you know, sort of mm -hmm. where it's easy to find. I mean, so... Like sometimes some of these trolls, you can click on their profile and see what other comments they've posted. And a lot of these guys, I mean, they just go to all these big sites and they post comments and every single comment down the line is, you know, like, 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 like one of the guys you would read, like the headline is like, uh, newly married couple dies in car accident. And his comment would be like, good, Darwinism in action or something like that. And it's like a comment of that level of offensiveness for every, every like thousands of comments that are all like that on mm -hmm. all these major news sites. So I don't think it's so much that Wired readers mm -hmm. are like that as just like Wired is big enough that like people like that can find their way there. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that there's some rogue hacker out there somewhere who just programmed a, a troll bot to, to go <laughs> leave asshole comments all over the internet? You know, <laughs> like I think he may have found it, Dave. Yeah, maybe. Well, that goes to the point, shows the uh, clearly the motivation of just wanting to be seen and, you know, get attention and sort of have an effect on people, even if it's negative, uh, you know, because somebody who's doing that is obviously doesn't really care at all about the content of the discussions on any of the any of the sites. They just sort of want to appear um, and be seen and as a way, I guess, of not just having power over other people to change their lives, in this case for the worse, but it's still <laughs> a change and still a kind of power. But maybe as, a, you know, kind of for their own way of being recognized um, as real, you know, so... And maybe that's part of the thrill um, of the idea that you can, you know, just sitting in your house alone and normally feeling isolated um, and maybe socially excluded, um, you know, just through uh, enough posting or a bot that posts, you know, across the web websites, you can suddenly sort of intrude onto the minds of, you know, large, large numbers of people. That's sort of a very, I think, tempting for form of power, especially for people who sort of otherwise feel invisible socially. Oh, yeah. And this person would be like, you know, he would be a Christian in some posts or an atheist in some posts. Like, just, uh, it didn't matter. Like, whatever, <laughs> you know, persona would allow him to be maximally asshole-ish was whatever. He was like a chameleon, you know. Yeah. <laughs> an <laughs> asshole like, chameleon. He was like the asshole <laughs> T-1000. He could just shift, <laughs> into any, shift into the biggest asshole to fit any space he goes into. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, this uh, that that sort of reminded me. I wanted I w I wondered about the, like where the line is between like asshole and sociopath. Because uh, like I mean I I don't I don't know like the strict definition of sociopath, but from generally what I understand, um, a lot of times uh, like their behavior is sort of triggered by their desire to like to feel things, and it's harder for them to feel like so like that's why they sort of push all these buttons and they do these things that a lot of other people find abhorrent because like doing these extreme things is the only way they, they can actually like feel anything. Or maybe that's psychopath. I'm not sure. But, um, but you know, it kind of feels like there's some overlap in the discussion there because um, certainly I'm sure a lot of assholes are sociopaths and, and that's, you know, sort of part of what makes them so good at being assholes. But um, do you guys have any thoughts about that or? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, 
So these categories aren't that well defined. I mean, we have these terms for it, but even in the psychology literature, they're not. It's not well that well defined. What's a psychopath or what's a sociopath? And then, of course, I'm you know proposing a definition of the asshole. But the way, and even with even with the asshole, you think um, you're sort of picking out. You focus on a sort of ideal case or model paradigmatic case. You know, that's a clear cut, the clear cut asshole. And then there's gray areas and half ass assholes and. <laughs> assholes and, and stuff like that. Um, but the, the big thing and the thing I say in the book is that the, is the main contrast I focus on was with the psychopath. So the asshole has moral concepts, has a moral sense of entitlement. But the psychopath, again, in this sort of paradigmatic, like sort of clearest case, just lacks moral concepts altogether or isn't motivated by them. So the psychopath can usually is, is pretty good at understanding um, social norms and can predict what other can people are going to do and predict what other people are going to call wrong or call an entitlement or call, but they don't themselves, as it were, make those judgments on the, of their own accord that something is wrong or, and they're not or they're not motivated as a result of that, uh, that judgment. And so in that way, they're sort of a, they're sort of amoral, uh, in a certain way. Um, and that, that's the kind of, so for the, the proper psychopath, you know, they can, um, kill someone um, because they want to eat their sandwich, you know, um, and you, if you say, well, don't you think that was wrong? And they, they'll say, well, I know, yeah, I know society considers that wrong, but I was really hungry, you know, um, and so, um, and they won't necessarily kill just unnecessarily, they won't inconvenience themselves by killing just for its own sake. But, you know, if it does serve their purposes, then they'll, there's no there's no moral norm that they themselves have internalized that moves them that stops them um, from doing. So that's the clearest case. And then there's various you know gray areas in between. And it could be now that's true even in the psychological literature. The concept of the psychopath isn't that well defined. There's just this rough family of sort of tests um, criteria that get used to try to identify someone as a psychopath. And then the sociopath concept is. It's not, some people say it's not really different than the psychopath, or some people it has a more social aspect, you know, um, it's a way in which uh, it, it refers more to manipulative behavior um, in a certain kind, uh, of certain kinds. Um, and then the kind you were discussing, you know, where somebody feels invisible or um, or is incapable of having feeling a connection with reality, they need to hurt other people to feel real. Um and that might be a, they might feel morally justified in, in doing that just because it might be an affirmation of their own sense of moral worth to act out in these ways. Right. Um, and um, that kind of that's a kind of psychologist will talk about that as a kind of narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and maybe in, ex and in extreme forms, I'm sure there'd be people who would be classified as sociopaths who, who act uh, that way. All right. So we're coming up on time here. Um, so we need to start wrapping this up. But uh, Aaron, you mentioned that. Uh, there have been all these comments about your book. Do you want to just tell us um, what some of the most interesting criticisms or interesting comments have been? Um, let's see. Interest, um, yeah, to the extent I've paid a lot of attention to. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think there was one that I was impressed by on, that was on the Amazon site where the person... Um, the, so the theory of the asshole is neutral on political questions because you have to plug in a conception of what people are or are not entitled to, um, to do, um, to, to apply the theory. So, you know, if you're on the right, uh, or the left, you can plug in your own judgments about what people are entitled or not to. And that yields different conclusions about who the assholes are, right? Um, that's not a disagreement about what it is to be an asshole, but who they are. And then I think there was a really like smart, thoughtful 
post on the Amazon page um, where somebody had pointed out how it ex had explained in a nice way how uh, that worked, but from a more right-leaning point of view. So I approach from the book, a lot of my examples work from a more left-leaning point of view. I say that in the book. And I, you know, sort of just saying that's how this this sort of enterprise works. And, you know, you can plug in your own examples. And then uh, there's some, there's a whole chapter on um, uh, called Asshole Capitalism that is pitched to some extent. You know, it's taking capitalism very seriously, but it's sort of pitched from a sort of left-leaning point of view. And then this post sort of retold the whole story from a right-leaning point of view, sort of accepting the framework, but then reinterpreting it with different sort of entitlement assumptions. Mm. And um, so I thought it was, an, it was, that was a really nice, thoughtful, um, like smart um, uh, kind of post and discussion. You know, it wasn't really long, but there was, there was really, you know, a lot of, you know, intelligence and care behind it. So, and, and it was making, what it was saying was true as well, just about the book. Uh, so I thought that was, you know, pretty good, you know, needle in the haystack though, I'm afraid for, <laughs> for, for quality. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so uh, what's next for you, Aaron? Um, I mean, aside from my usual academic writing and stuff, I am planning a popular book, uh, writing another popular book on um, philosophy, uh, a surfing philosophy and climate change. Uh, and the big, some of the big uh, upshot is about um, leisure time and how we should work. The future of capitalism on a changing planet means that we should uh, work a lot less than we do in a more leisurely style of uh, capitalism, leisurely surfer-friendly style of capitalism. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a grand argument for why, um, why it is that we should work less and why working less is, um, is itself a kind of social contribution. Um, uh, but, and then aside from that, a lot of it is about just things that the surfer knows um, by virtue of knowing how to ride a wave, about attunement and going with the flow, and then why those ideas... Uh, are a bear on how um, the future of capitalism on a changing planet. That's interesting. You know, when we interviewed Kim Stanley Robinson, he pointed out that if ocean levels rise significantly due to global warming, there will be no more beaches on Earth, right? Because it takes millions of years uh, yeah, to produce exactly. beaches. Yeah, I hadn't really considered how that might affect the surfers of the world, but uh, yeah. No, well, all of the world's good waves will be gone. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, and it, uh, th three feet of sort of average uh, sea level increase only, which is a modest increase given the current projections, will pretty much uh, like leave a lot of the very best waves in the world sort of gone forever or only, only rideable on the lowest tides. Uh, but a 10 feet increase, which scientists are now predicting because of the, um, the collapse of the Western Ar uh, Antarctica uh, ice sheets, um, you know, over a hundred years, that that basic ten a ten foot average increase basically means that all the world's surf spots, um, you know, are pretty much gone or massively degraded. You know, let alone seventeen feet, which some scientists cite in the base. <laughs> it's it's all over. I mean, maybe there could be some new spots that come into existence, but um, that that'll happen maybe on a temporary basis. But over the long run, it uh, it won't work because for waves to be surfable, it requires you know thousands and thousands of years of very subtle, you know, uh, changes for, you know, to get all of the right, um, elements to all to come together to have really good waves. So, um, that's part of the back story of the book, why the surfer has an existential stake in, hmm. in, uh, climate change <laughs> and should, from a conservative point of view, be really worried about not letting, uh, the world's the oceans and atmosphere change uh, very much. Hmm. Well, that's that's really interesting. Uh, unfortunately, I think we should wrap this up right now.
Uh, I'll just say as a last word, I just think, you know, like I said, there's this um, sort of pressure toward negative comments. So I would just encourage everyone out there, if there's something you love, say something positive about it because, uh, you know, you want to balance out all the assholes out there. Uh, but I think we should uh, wrap this up there. But uh, thank you, Aaron, so much for joining us. It was really, really interesting. Thanks so much. Nice to be with you. And that was our panel. So thanks again to Aaron James and John Joseph Adams for joining us as guest geeks. And big thanks again to Cecil Baldwin for being our guest today. Also, a special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including Kevin O'Brien, crowdfunder number 78, and Vlad Levin, crowdfunder number 71, who just became the latest listener to be making monthly contributions to the show. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. And now it's time to announce the winners of our audiobook giveaway. Ten listeners will receive a free audiobook download of the new anthology The End is Nigh, edited by Hugh Howey and John Joseph Adams, which Fearnet says is, quote, destined to be a favorite among end-of-the-world enthusiasts. And the winners are Andy Michaels, Rob Matheny, Seth Wilson, Diane Urbanic, Jeff English, Mark Muhair, Christopher Brown, Jesse Knifley, Seth Heasley, and Charles Floating. So congratulations to all the winners, and big thanks to everyone who entered. We'll be sending out emails to the winners with instructions on how to download the book. If you don't hear from us within a few days, please email us at geeksgalaxy at gmail.com to follow up. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.